scripture is from Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 45. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him but we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him, strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening, the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. <clears throat> While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. Thank you. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your uh, divinely inspired word. 
And we pray now that you will bless the preaching of your word by your servant Robin, and that it would be for our good and for your glory. And we ask in the only the way that we can approach you through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. 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 I apologize to the band, but I'm going to move some of this stuff away so I don't trip over it. So, it had been the worst weekend ever for the disciples. On Friday, they had seen Jesus crucified. On Saturday, they had had to sit at home worrying, thinking, stewing over what this meant. Then this morning, they had heard that their teacher's body had disappeared. Clearly, it was a difficult time for them. And we don't know why. Um, perhaps they just, it's like, it's over. It's done with. And so probably around mid-afternoon, they decided to just go home to Emmaus. I say mid-afternoon because it's about 12 kilometers from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And so if they walked about four kilometers per hour, which is kind of normal, it would take them three hours. And it says in the text, it was almost evening when they arrived there. So they've been walking for a few hours. It would be an understatement to say the disciples were discouraged. Devastated is probably a better word. Verse 17, they stood still, their faces downcast. Verse 21, we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. They were downcast, their hopes shattered. But Jesus brings them encouragement. Well, actually, first there's a rebuke. How foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And then there's the, the encouragement. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. The essence of Jesus' encouragement is this is not a mistake. Nothing has gone wrong. This is how it, how it had to be. Come, let me show you from the scriptures. Now, at this point, they don't know it's Jesus, right? To them, he's just another Jew who knows his Bible better than they do. And they're encouraged by what, they, what he shares. Verse 32, they, reflecting on these, they say, Were not our hearts burning within us? while he taught with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us. Have you ever had that experience? Where you're discouraged or afraid or upset and someone shares something from scripture doesn't necessarily change the situation. It doesn't necessarily make anything better, but it does put things in a different light and it helps you to see God's hand in what's happening. That was these disciples' experience on the road to Emmaus with Jesus. He didn't supernaturally speak faith into, or encouragement into their lives. He simply opened up scripture 
and interpreted it and applied it to their lives. I don't normally like to tell stories in the pulpit that put me in a good light. Um, I'm going to make an exception this morning. When I was pastoring in Canada, a member of our congregation was stabbed to death by somebody who, was, who actually had the ambition of becoming a serial killer. Thankfully, the police caught him before that happened. But we still lost one of our, our congregation members. I preached a message the following Sunday from Psalm 37 about living in a broken world. Applying scripture to the experience of the congregation of, in the aftermath of George's death. I had a student with me from the seminary at the time. I'm actually pretty sure she wouldn't have described herself as an evangelical, but she always treated scripture with respect when she preached. And she came to me afterwards and said simply, I want to learn how to do that. Meaning she wanted to learn how to bring scripture to bear on the lives of a community. That's exactly what Jesus did with these disciples. And it's something actually that each one of us can learn to do as we read scripture and make it more and more a part of our lives. It's not something that's reserved for pastors and preachers. We can all do that for each other in our lives. We can bring scripture to bear on where our friends and our family are at and bring encouragement. So what were the sources that Jesus used to speak encouragement into these guys' hearts? It says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Moses and all the prophets is Luke's preferred way of talking about what other gospel writers, predominantly Matthew, call the law and the prophets, what we would call the Old Testament. Remember how last week I said that although scripture finds its source in God, it still bears the marks of the humans that God used in its production. This is an example of that. Matthew talks about the law and the prophets. Luke talks about Moses and the prophets. Same way Matthew talks about the kingdom of heaven, where everybody else in the New Testament talks about the kingdom of God. It's just different terminology for the same thing. So in the broadest sense, a prophet is someone who speaks for God. He's a spokesperson. And in that sense, all of the Old Testament writers were prophets, not just the ones that had the title attached to their names. In Jewish terms, the writers of the historical books, you know, Joshua, Judges, Kings, are called the, um, the former prophets, to distinguish them from the books that we normally you know, talk about as the prophets, like Isaiah or Jeremiah. In Acts 2.30, David is called a prophet. Just as an aside, um, the way the books in the, in the Jewish Bible are arranged is different from the way that our Old Testament is, is arranged. There's the, it's the, old, the Jewish Bible is arranged in three sections. There's the Torah, which is usually translated as law, but it's probably better translated as instruction. Um, that's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Then there's the prophets. So the prophets are Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, and what's called the Twelve. That's the minor prophets. So you see what I mean by the historical books being included in the prophets? Then there's the writings. 
Psalms, Proverbs, Job, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Ruth, Lamentations, Daniel, Ezra, sorry, Esther, Ezra, Nehemiah as one, one book, and Chronicles. I had to write all those down, just make sure I got them, okay? I don't have them memorized in, that, in those orders. And Jesus actually seems to, you know, refer to that three-part division at the end of the passage that we just read, because he says, everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. So this is what Luke is referring to when he talks about all the scriptures. So as Mark said, starting this week, we're starting a Bible reading program um, called The Essential 100. It's 100 passages of scripture that tell the core story of the, of the Bible. And there's reading guides at the back. If you didn't get one when you came in, you can grab them on the way out. And I'm hoping that a whole, at least a significant number of us will read these passages together. And they'll be, it'll become a, um, a common experience for us as a community. The title of this message is All Scripture Points to God. So, so all Scripture points to Jesus. Um, now, that's obviously the case in the New Testament, because the New Testament is about Jesus, so that's not a problem, right? Um, but how can we say that about the Old Testament? Now, to be honest, um, I'm thankful to have Mark in my life, because Mark keeps me honest. Uh, earlier this week, we were talking about this, and Mark goes, your title says all scripture points to Jesus. Don't, don't you, haven't you, you complained in the past about people who, you know, preach a really good sermon on a topic and then at the very end go, now we're going to talk about Jesus. And, um, you know, so, uh, and he's right. Uh, um, but the thing is, I, I, I chose the title before I wrote the sermon. Not a good idea. Not a good idea. Um, you know, when you go to college, they tell you to write the, the, the paper first. Then write the introduction and do the sermon last, do the title last, right? I did it backwards. Um, I realized that the title is open to misinterpretation. What Luke says is that Jesus explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And again, in John 3, uh, 539, Jesus says, You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. These texts don't say that every scripture and passage and verse somehow points to Jesus. What they say is that in the scriptures, there are pointers to Jesus. So I tried to think of a better title and really didn't come up with one. But basically, what I'm trying to communicate here is the sense that the whole Bible is the story of God's loving pursuit of a rebellious humanity. That's the theme of the Bible. And that theme finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. That's my point. But just as in any great story, there are side plots and there are dead ends. So too in Scripture, there are passages that don't directly relate to Jesus. It's hard to find a direct connection between Jesus and the command in Deuteronomy to build a wall around the edge of your, your, the roof of your house. I've tried. And the whole story of the northern kingdom of Israel is essentially a dead end. They go into exile and are never heard from again. But these aren't useless pieces of padding in the story. Because the command to build a wall around the roof of your house so people don't fall off and die 
is an expression of the value that God puts on human life and our responsibility for the welfare of our neighbor. It's an insight into the character of God. And the story of the decline and fall of the northern kingdom is a warning about what happens when God's people turn their backs on him. And it's a graphic image of our need to be rescued from ourselves. So I'm not arguing that every scripture has a direct link to Jesus. I'm arguing that the whole story taken together points to him. Now, having said that, there are obviously certain passages of scripture that do, in fact, point directly to Jesus. And they're probably the passages that Jesus expounded to these disciples as they're walking along along the road. From Moses or the law, there's passages like Deuteronomy 18.18. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites, and I'll put my words in his mouth. He will tell them everything I command them. That's actually probably what the Samaritan woman at the well was referring to when she wrote, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Because the Samaritans only accepted the first five books. And Stephen explicitly ties that text to Jesus in Acts 3.22. Then there's a whole host of passages in the major prophets, the, the, the latter prophets as the, uh, the, the, the Jewish um, Bible calls them, uh, that point explicitly to Jesus. Isaiah 53, 7 and 8, that Philip used in Acts 8 as a jumping off to share the gospel with the Ethiopian eunuch. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. Or Isaiah 7.14, about the conditions of Jesus' birth. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and will call him Emmanuel. And from the Psalms, the first book of the writings, passages like Psalm 22, that so graphically portrays the crucifixion, but was written hundreds of years earlier. All who see me mock me, they hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say, yet let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Verse 14, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is turned to wax. He has mel- it has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothing among them, and they cast lots for my garment. I can imagine Jesus walking down the road to Emmaus with these two guys and pointing to these passages and saying, see, it's not a mistake. It was all planned. The Messiah had to suffer. And here are the predictions of the details of his suffering. Take heart. God is in control. And all of these passages can in some way be said to predict Jesus. The coming, his coming, his ministry, his crucifixion. But there is, there's an, another category of Old Testament passages that isn't an explicit prediction, but it's more of a foreshadowing of Jesus. 
the New Testament writers and actually the, the early church fathers after them looked at all of the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus, his, his life, his ministry, his, his crucifixion, and his resurrection. And they found foreshadowings of him in all kinds of places. In John 3, 14, Jesus refers to Numbers 2, 19, when a plague of poisonous snakes had invaded the Israelite camp. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. And Jesus takes that and applies it to himself. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. So Jesus himself gives us a model for seeing a saving act of God in the Old Testament as a foreshadowing of his great saving act on the cross. In Genesis 3.15, God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will crush his heel. This is called the Proto-Evangelium, um, the first anticipation of the gospel, that someone will rise up who will defeat Satan on behalf of mankind. It's a foreshadowing of a future promise. And the earliest Christians reading Scripture through the lens of Jesus saw him as the fulfillment of this verse. Other passages don't predict or foreshadow, but they do kind of prepare God's people to understand God's grace. When David shows mercy to King Saul's lame son, who would have been the royal grandson, sorry, his, my son, his grandson, uh, who would have been a blood uh, descendant of King Saul and therefore a rival for David's throne, when David shows mercy to him, we understand something about God's way of forgiving enemies and showing mercy towards the helpless. That's actually one of my favorite subplots in the whole Bible, the story of Mephibosheth in 2 Samuel 19. Brian Chappell, from whom I borrowed some of the ideas from this message, says, Grace does not spring up like a surprise jack-in-the-box in the New Testament. God's people were prepared for millennia to understand and receive the grace of Christ. In Galatians 3.24, Paul writes, The law was our schoolmaster, our guardian, leading us to Christ. Through it, we understand the standards that God calls us to and our need of his grace when we fail. And that grace was made concrete in the Old Testament through the sacrificial system, which helps us to understand that without the shedding of blood, there's no atonement for our failures. As it says in Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And it goes on to expound Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament sacrificial system sacrificial system it says in verse 24 for christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands there was only a copy of the true one he entered heaven itself now to appear for us in god's presence nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own otherwise christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world but he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages 
to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. So you see the way that the New Testament writers would take something in the Old Testament and look at it through the lens of Jesus and find a deeper understanding of it. So we've talked about this passage of Scripture that predicts Jesus' coming and his ministry. We've talked about passages that foreshadow Jesus, things like the bronze snake in the desert. And we've talked about passages that prepare the way for us to understand God's grace. Grace is ultimately made available to us through Jesus, our Redeemer. Still leaves a lot of the Old Testament unaccounted for. What do we do with, for instance, that rule about putting the wall around the roof, right? Well, when a passage doesn't fit into any of those categories, you can always ask two questions that are fair to ask of any biblical text. What does this passage teach us about the nature of God who provides redemption? And what does this passage teach us about the nature of humanity that requires redemption? Those of you who have had exposure to the Discovery Bible study movement will recognize those questions. They're basically the first two questions in a DBS study group. What did I discover about God in this passage? And what did I discover about people in this passage? The other two questions are, how will I commit to obey this passage this week and with whom will I share what I've learned in this passage? There's a a whole movement of people doing church planting using those four questions and seeing a lot of fruit out of it. We can use these first two questions as lenses to look at any passage of Scripture to see what's reflected there about God's nature and what's reflected there about human nature. And if we do that, inevitably, we will see that God is holy, we are not, that God is sovereign, and we are vulnerable, that God is merciful and we require his mercy. When we read this scripture with these questions in mind, they will always make us aware of our need for God's grace for us as sinners. Jesus may not be specifically mentioned in the text or even pointed to in the text, but as we see God's character contrasted with us in the text, we will, every time we do that, we will see our need for his grace. Those lessons can, um, those questions can ask like, act like reading glasses for us. Um, I'm, not, I'm no longer wearing glasses most of the time, but it's kind of nice to be in, in that condition. But you know, if you take glasses, reading glasses, you put them on, mix, it makes things clearer, right? If we take those questions and put them on like reading glasses, we'll, we'll be able to see how gracious God is, how he gives Strength to the weak, rest to the weary, deliverance to the disobedient, faithfulness to unfaithful, food to the hungry, salvation to sinners. But we'll also learn something about human nature. It's one of the things I love about Scripture is it doesn't pull the punches about human nature. 
right? We see heroes fail. You know, kings fall. Prophets run away scared. Disciples doubt. God's people fall into idolatry. And that's really helpful because it keeps us from setting up characters in Scripture as some kind of heroes to be emulated. But they're flawed men and women in need of God's grace, just like us. So as we head into this season of reading Scripture together, I encourage you to ask yourself questions about what you're reading. Does this passage in some way predict Jesus' ministry? Does it in some way foreshadow his ministry? Does it in some way prepare us to understand more about God's grace? And often your Bible will have footnotes that point to ways in which scholars or the New Testament writers themselves have made those connections. If none of those questions work, and that's quite possible, you can always ask those last two questions. What does this passage teach me about God's character? And what does it teach me about people and our need for God's redemption? May God bless us as we read his word together. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the inestimable riches that are to be found there, that we can and people do spend their entire life studying it and continue to learn and find new things in it. Thank you for that, Lord. We thank you that just as you, Lord Jesus, Use scripture to speak encouragement into the hearts of those two guys on the road down to Emmaus. You can equip each one of us to use scripture in that way, to minister to our neighbor, to our friend, to our family. Lord, help us to be open to learn, open to see new things in your word, open to understand the, the grace and encouragement that comes from it as we read it together. And Lord, we, in the midst of that, we uh, recognize that your heart is broken because we, this is what we learn in Scripture is that you, your heart is broken by our rebellion and sin and violence. And so we know that your, your, your heart is broken as Millions of people around the world are on the verge of starvation, not just because of climate change, because of that too, but also because the, the war in Ukraine is really affecting access to, to food worldwide. So Lord, we pray for those places. We pray for an end to the, to the war. We pray for the release of the uh, food supplies that people need. Lord, we pray for um, Afghanistan and uh, recognize that many NGOs have ceased operating there because of the recent rule to, um, that they can't employ women. I mean, most of the work that most of these NGOs do is done through women to families. Lord, pray for a reversal of that because 
these organizations are the ones that um, supply many of the necessary requirements for life in, in that country. Yes, and wars and famines and disruptions cause the movement of millions of people, Lord. And Turkey is a major part of the refugee highway. And recognize with the, the, the winter weather, it's much more difficult now. Um, thousands go missing every winter. Um, Lord, we pray for a, a just solution to the... Uh, the problem of millions of people without homes on on their way with hope for a new for a new life Lord we pray for uh, Anya particularly for Anya's um, family um, she's a coordinator who works with Ukrainian orphans um, and just her concern for her parents who had to had to flee heavy bombing in their town in in Ukraine Lord, I pray you'd be uh, giving her peace in her heart. Lord, we thank you that Alexi is out of hospital and recovering. Um, we pray for Madonna, four-year-old orphan who is also recovering from brain surgery, doing well, but currently has an infection. I pray that you would bring her quickly back to health. Lord, we pray for Finn. Rosemary's 22-year-old nephew who's in cardiac care in New Zealand. Lord, we pray for uh, wisdom for the doctors as they seek to find out what is causing his, um, his heart to race every time he stands out and causing him to, to black out. So we pray for that. And Lord, we pray for our AGM meeting this morning, this afternoon. And we thank you, Lord, for your your blessing upon us as a congregation and pray for wisdom as we gather after the service to deliberate about the coming year. Let's say the Lord's Prayer together in whatever language you're comfortable in. Our Father, who art in heaven, Amen. As we um, close out our service in, in worship, there'll be an opportunity to pray. If you're, uh, there'll be people up here at the front and at the back. So if there's something on your heart that you, you would want to share with someone to pray, um, that could be for yourself or a family member or something that's, you know, that you've, you've, you really would like to see prayer for. Um, there's power in sharing and praying together. So as we have this, um, these last couple of songs of worship, if there's something on your heart that you want to have someone share, pray with you for, there'll be people at the front and at the back, okay? Stand for the last two songs, please. Oh, I have heard a thousand stories of love. 
good father. You're a good, good father. It's who you are. You're the great king of all the 
Amen. Amen. As Mark mentioned, there will not be refreshments downstairs, just once a year we do this. Um, to get to the um, AGM, you go out the, out the gate from the garden, you turn right, turn right again, then turn right again, and you're right there. <laughs> um, because the Varuna Cafe is right behind us. There'll be signposts, hopefully. Um, and uh, encourage you to make your way over there. Uh, we're starting at 12.30, um, so gives give you some time to get there. It'll only take you like three minutes to get there, two minutes at the most, maybe. But it, we do need to give time for the crew here to tidy up and tear down everything so they can also get there, okay? So that's why we're not just going straight out of this meeting into another meeting. But uh, I encourage you... Um, uh, if you're if you're a member, I want to see you there. Um, <laughs> but also, if you're a regular attender, we'd love to have you there to have your um, involvement, um, as Mark said, so that we can you know have us we can hear your voices if you have something to say to the the agenda of the um, of the meeting. Now, as we go, take this word with you from Psalm 21. Lord, watch over you. The Lord be your shade at your right hand. Sun will not harm you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord watch over your coming and going, both now and forevermore. Amen. Amen.